In today's episode, we're talking about the business value of customer experience and measuring your customer experience initiatives. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Flip the Switch, where we sit down with leaders in customer experience and employee experience, and we try to figure out what are the trends that they're paying attention to? What are the experiments that they're running? What are the principles that have driven success for them throughout their career? And then we take all those things, we apply them to the world of sports and entertainment. Now, we are really excited about today's guest because we are about to get nerdy on customer experience, specifically measuring customer experience. Now, Today's guest is Paula Courtney, the president and CEO of the Verde Group. Now, if you've never heard of the Verde Group, that's okay. They usually operate behind the scenes for a lot of big Fortune 100 companies, really diving into in-depth research projects for customer experience for these massive companies. Now, Paula has a very unique approach to customer experience, and it's why we wanted to have her on the show. Their group is really all about understanding the financial impacts of customer dissatisfaction. So it's a little bit different than most people where if you think about your own survey that you run as a sports team, you're probably trying to figure out how likely are you to recommend this experience to one of your friends or your family. Paula's team takes a totally different approach that's really grounded and rooted in human behavior, but really about this insight that individuals are far more likely to take action in response to a negative event than a positive one. So they hone in on customer dissatisfaction and they talk about how when your people leave, your customers leave, how much impact that causes to your organization. So as a result, uh, we are going to get really into some unique approaches to customer experience here. Some extra background, uh, Paul and her team, they're a research partner with uh, Wharton. Uh, they've done so many different published big research studies that have tons of information. We talk about a few of them in this conversation with Paula. We're going to link to all those in the show notes so that way you can dive deep into their methodology their research, and some of the data that you might find is pretty surprising. So uh, without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Paula Courtney, the CEO and president of The Verde Group. Paula, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. I am super excited to jump into this episode, and it couldn't come at a better time where a lot of organizations in the sport and entertainment space are having to rethink how they measure customer experience and how they understand their customers. And I, I'm really excited to get, jump in with you because you've got such a long history of working on these very things. Let, let's start it off here. I, I was looking at some of the information that your team has put together and there was a recent Accenture survey that you guys did some follow-up research on. And there's a stat in that survey that's super interesting to me and I think all of our listeners. And in that survey, there was about 25,000 consumers that were researched across 22 countries, and they found that 50% of those respondents had indicated that the pandemic made them totally revise their personal purpose and what's important in their life. Why does that matter to our listeners, Paula? Ah, the reimagined consumer, they called it. Um, so I, I absolutely believe that consumer preferences and consumer choices have been altered. 
not just their preferences and their choices, but more importantly, how we buy, how we consume content, how we consume services. So the first most obvious trend that we see is the digitization of information consumption. So Amazon, and we call it the Amazonian effect, but Amazon has really set the bar for how quick you can get stuff. Push a button, uh, you know, get choices, make cost comparisons literally in seconds, and within an hour or two, you might have your package or your product delivered to your front door. That has completely changed, even for consumers that weren't used to shopping that way, weren't used to consuming uh, products or spending money uh, online. They you know, preferred to browse. The pandemic has forced people to be confined to their homes. Stores closing made them have to buy differently. And there's a big sort of thinking right now, like how sustainable are these changes? Yet I wish I had a crystal ball. I really believe that, and there's a lot of research just very recently that says that consumers want to go back into a store, for example. They want and need and crave physical interaction. So when we think about businesses that have an online as well as a physical presence, I think that's critically important. How do we, how do we ensure that we show up well on a digital front and how do we ensure that we can welcome back our customers to that physical experience that a lot of them are, are craving? This set, so that's the one big trend is, is the entire digitization mm. of the customer here in boardrooms among senior executives is they're spending a ton of money on what they're calling digital transformation. And that is making it easy to do business with their company. Mm. Um, we call it the shoppable, you know, how shoppable is your business? How shoppable are you? Uh, do, do you make customers have to think before they buy, they think about how to buy, like how do I consume, how do I get your service, how do I get your tickets if we're going to uh, a sports game. So the ease at which I can consume your product or service is the biggest trend. And, and also the, uh, the second one is the whole sustainability. Uh, so many people are now choosing brands and this research that we just did identified that there are sort of five key elements um, that go into a customer's choice as to whether you're gonna get their next dollar. The first one is relevance. How relevant are you for that customer? Do you have the product breadth? Do you have the right price point for them? So to get into the game, are you relevant? The second one is that shoppable. How shoppable are you? How easy is it? Which is what I talked about. And the third one is customer support. So when things go sideways, mm. what is your recovery process? When customers experience friction, are you able to recover from that friction effectively? Another one is what we call the sensorial experience. How nice are you? 
Even websites, are they pretty? Is it easy to navigate? Is it easy to navigate in a store if you're a retailer? Uh, but if you're a stadium or a venue, uh, as I know many of your listeners are in that space, how pleasant is it? And this is like, you know, visually, do you look nice? You know, does it feel good? Um, and then the fourth one, and this is the, the fifth one, sorry, is really tricky. And this is how meaningful is your mm. brand? Do you connect with what's important to that customer's brand? I think that what we've discovered in some of our research, particularly in your industry, is a lot of sports teams want to deliver excellent customer experience. They think of Walt Disney as like, hey, why can't we create a Disney-like experience? When really every team has an essence to their brand identity. And what we would recommend those organizations do is connect their experience to their brand signature. Uh, so a perfect example would be Harley Davidson. They have a very unique yep. brand. They have a very unique formula and they wouldn't try to be Disney. They need to be Harley Davidson because their customers have a unique connection to their brand. So that fifth element is, do you connect in a meaningful way to your customers and for your listeners, fans or customers? Absolutely. Huge. That's one way to start off the podcast, right? I mean, like I, I, I'm going to, we could, we could have done the whole podcast on breaking down all of those things. I, I know we got a lot to cover, but real quick, can you just repeat the five, those five elements, those five questions that our leaders should be asking themselves? So again, these are the five elements that we picked up and they're not hierarchical and they're not sequential. Um, but the five are relevance is, are you relevant? And that's the sort of starting place. Do you have a product that is of interest to me and the price point that I'm willing to pay? But even that doesn't matter because sometimes you could have tremendous meaning and sometimes we pay a premium for something that I connect with. You know, I'll buy yep. a Chanel handbag because maybe I like what that brand stands for. So relevance is the first one. The second one is shoppable. How easy are you to buy from? You know, are you shoppable? Yep. Is it easy to buy your products and services? Navigate your website, walk through your store. Um, if you're an insurance provider, if you're a venue, how easy it is to make that purchase. The third Number one three. is yep. customer support. So when things go sideways in the buying experience, which often they do, and in fact, sort of the pre-buying experience is often where a lot of problems occur, what is your recovery? Are you good at resolving customer problems? Very simple. In fact, and I'll pause right there, but anyways, so to answer your question, that's the next one. And then the fourth one is this sensorial. You know, are you pretty? Are you nice? Does it feel good to be in your venue, to be in your store? Does your website look pretty? Like, you know, big icons, colorful mm -hmm. imagery. Mm -hmm. And the last one is the meaning. You know, do okay. you have a meaningful connection to what matters to me, whether it's sustainable? Are you a sustainable brand? Do you recycle? You know, maybe that's values. important to yeah. me. So. I mean, what it boils down to for me on all of these is ultimately how well do you know your customer? A lot of it, because you can't you can't make all these things 
happen. You can't adjust your organization unless you're really deeply understanding who that customer is. And And I know that as a part of what you and your team do when you're working with clients is that's kind of where it starts, I think, right, is what are the goals and how do you identify who your customers are? What are your customers' goals? How do you identify moments that matter in the experience? I mean, maybe maybe talk to us a little bit about how you and your team really go about understanding what makes those customers tick. Yes, excellent question. I think the first thing that I would say in response to that is assume that your customers are a cast of characters, meaning they're all different. Your customers are not a homogeneous group of people. And I think the biggest failing for many businesses is believing they have a single customer that buys from them. Mm. They have multiple customers. They have customers who are uh, small families with small kids. They have customers who are young professionals. There are customers who live in the suburbs and customers who are more rural. So understanding first and foremost that your customers are very heterogeneous. There are lots of different types of customers that you have. So understanding and identifying that you likely have a business that must serve multiple segments. That's the first starting block. The second one is now understanding how to interrogate their needs, their expectations, and Mm -hmm. their experiences. And what a lot of organizations do, and I'm going to keep this super basic, David, and thank you for that, that tidbit, is if you want to find out what customers think of you, don't ask them how much they love you. And we call this the applause meter survey. On a scale of one to five, how satisfied are you with me? Or how satisfied are you with my customer service, with, uh, you know, my physical store or my sales reps or whatever it is that you want to evaluate, asking customers how happy they are on a happiness scale will not give you actionable insights and it won't necessarily tell you what's driving their next purchase. Instead, what we recommend is that organizations focus on not the attitude that your customers have with respect to your business, but more importantly, the experiences they have when they do business with you. So ask them about what happened. Ask them about Hmm. the experiences that they had when they bought from you. And these are statements that are binary. Did this happen to you? Were you greeted? Uh, Did you experience a dirty washroom if it's a venue? Did you experience an accurate bill or an invoice? So understanding what customers experienced is far easier to action on. And that's what you're after, David. Your audience, you want actionable insights. So ask customers what happened to them. And um, yeah, sorry, you want to... No, I'm, I'm going to selfishly get really nerdy here because I think we do a lot of work with sports teams on helping them with their surveys as, as just as a small part of what we do. Because in order to, again, go to and attack this larger customer experience, you've got to know what your what your uh, what your customers are thinking, what they're feeling. And, and so I'm, I'm interested in this because I think a lot of sports teams tend to target 
net promoter score and how is that improving game over game or, or overall satisfaction? What was your overall satisfaction on a scale of one to 10? And what I hear you saying is go in a different direction, but the direction that you're going in, I think almost starts with, you got to know what are those moments that matter with your customer to be able to ask about those. Is, is that right? Am I, am I going in the right direction here? So, and the first way to do that is put yourself in the customer's shoes and walk their journey. What is the typical journey that a customer takes when they do business with you? Whether it's the awareness that they have about, you know, a game or um, your team, your stadium. Uh, the second is, you know, maybe they're going to buy something from you. So what is that purchase experience like? What is the actual game time experience like? What is the post game experience? So if you document the journey and almost anyone can do this in an organization, they understand their business enough to know what are the, the moments of interaction and all the different experiences that you might or might not have when you do business with an organization. The next step is to interrogate on those experiences, find out what happened and what is different about what we do, David, is we interrogate on negative experiences. We interrogate on friction. And the reason why we do that is because, unfortunately, negative experiences are highly predictive of customer behavior. When customers experience problems, they just don't buy again. And if we think about one of the trends that you mentioned earlier, you know, we're seeing stadiums maybe are not filled to capacity. And yep. if we want to fill stadiums to capacity, which is the business that we're in, which is how do you grow your revenue? How do you ensure that next sale? How do you get that customer coming back? And maybe not just coming back, but growing their share of wallet with you. Well, you need to understand and you need to deliver what the experience is and ensure that it's a frictionless experience because friction suppresses customer loyalty. So attitudes are simply cognitive expressions of the experience. But by the time you measure an attitude, it's too late. You can't change it. You can only influence and change the experience that created that attitude. So we're all about creating actionable insights for our clients, which are organizations, mm -hmm. sports teams, so that they make more money. And the way to do that is understanding and removing the friction that occurs in every single business. I, absolutely. I, I mean, I could not agree more. We, we've had so many episodes and, and again, with our, our Disney background, I mean, that was something that we were constantly doing in the parks is seeking out what are those pain points? What are those points of friction? And then saying, how could we create a service? Like if waiting in line is a, a something that that causes a lot of emotion how can we create a how might we create a service that alleviates that pain point like putting in disney's fast pass that allows you to kind of skip and and reserve your spot in that line if you will and um, david you just ahead. hit the nail on the head by understanding friction that's actually the bedrock to innovation organizations innovate around understanding friction yeah, that's such a I mean, we're going to clip that, I'm sure, uh, because that is such a great point of if you're trying to think about in this off season, uh, how do we get better? What are our new ideas? What I would say is, and I'm sure you would agree with this, Paul, is look at what those pain points are, find out what those friction points are, and then say, how might we create a service or an offering or a product that or a third party vendor that can come in and help us alleviate that pain point? Because that's where you're going to grow your experience oftentimes. Paul, is some. Something that you hit on that I want to tie back to is 
talking about how strong and powerful these negative emotions are to revenue or limiting revenue for an organization. Oftentimes, one of the biggest obstacles we get in a customer experience transformation is the lack of tie back to these customer experience metrics to bottom line. So what are some of the strategies that you and your team use to kind of connect those insights to actually driving bottom line impact for an organization? So I'm going to keep it pretty simple and straightforward. So one is we do have a methodology that that does analyze and identify the negative experiences that customers have and identify an economic value to those experiences. Hmm. It, there's no secret sauce and there's no black box. There is something fundamental about human motivation theory and it says this, if a customer says they're going to do something, a person, I, I won't even use the word customer, this is social science. If a person says they're going to do something, the likelihood of them following through on a positively stated intention is very low. There are lots of things that drive and motivate our behaviors. However, there are few things that drive our negative motivators. So if, if you say, I'm not going to buy from you again, I'm never coming back the likelihood of you following through on a negatively stated intention is actually quite high. So if you ask customers if they're going to buy again and you look at their likelihood of saying no and you marry that with the experiences, the negative experiences that they experienced, you can start to identify the relationship between these pain points and our risk to our revenue. In fact, there is this little, let's do a little test right now. Think about the last time you yourself as a consumer consciously made a decision to stop doing business with a company. Mm -hmm. And if you were to think about that, that example and share it with the audience or have every one of your listeners do that test with themselves or their organizations, they're going to quickly quickly come to the conclusion that it was a problem that they had, that they had some horrible thing happen to them or, and they tried maybe to get it resolved. And the resolution was even more painful than the actual problem. And not only did they stop doing business with that company, but they told a ton of people about it. So negative word of mouth has an incredible, powerful effect on your on your revenue growth potential. In fact, one of our landmark studies that we did with the Wharton School of Business was the effect of negative word of mouth. And not just on the people who share stories, but more importantly, the people that hear negative stories. So imagine how you are influenced by someone else's negative story. Very different from watching a negative review, like you go to Yelp or you go mm -hmm, to Google mm -hmm. and you read reviews, that's, those are anonymous. So we don't pay attention to those. I mean, we do, but what really affects behavior is if your friend, your best friend said, you will never believe this horrible thing happened to me. I trust me, don't ever go there again or buy that. 50% of people who hear stories from people they know, are influenced to not go to that particular store or business. 
It's massive, massive. Wow. And that study was done a few years ago. Uh, Katie, we got to see if we can link to that study in the show notes, uh, because I, I'm sure there's a ton of ton more great information that we can get into there. But I, I Paul, I totally hear what you're saying there. I mean, I mean, I, one thing I want to dive into is may, maybe we dive into a little bit about service recovery. On that note, of how do we how do we make things better so that we're not in that category of giving a bad experience to our customer and them telling their friends. Uh, so go ahead. Yeah. So. We did a study recently, and by the way, all these studies are on our website. You can download them. Um, but the study was on WOW. We, okay. You know, pandemic was crazy. I think maybe Katie referenced one of our studies, but we did a study. It was with Wharton. We do, they're, we're their research partner. And um, we did a study on what is WOW. Like, what, what is the one experience that you had that was so amazing that it made you buy again? And across the board and this was a retail study so we looked at mass merchandisers and specialty retailers and department stores and um category killers like the best buys and the mm. you know um home depots of the world and found that without question the number one thing that wows customers is hassle-free customer support basically interesting if I have a problem, I need, some. and I think a lot of, if you think about Amazon, which, you know, again, the frenemy of all businesses, um, they have an outstanding, they've nailed it because if you have a problem, you basically, the pro the returns process is, is super, super easy. And Wayfair is another wonderful example of an organization that, you know, if you have a problem, not only will you get the product replaced right away, but they don't even want the old product back. They can, mm -hmm. you know, I've heard people say, I got to keep the sofa and I got another one. You know what I mean? So it's, I mean, it, it's the best because it removes, it removes the pain of having to go to the store and even return that item. And I, I mean, that's, it's brilliant. Right. So I think the key to customer support is that there is no uh, magic bullet with respect to it. It's like, how do you as a person want to get recovered from problem? How do you want to receive customer support? You want it to be fast. You, you want to make it easy for your customers to know where they can go to get a problem resolved. So if you're an omni-channel, you know, business where you have, you know, a physical presence and an online presence, and I experienced my problem online, can I go to your venue and get the resolution there? Or no, if you bought online, you got to deal with it online. Well, that's not good, you know, because people don't think that way anymore. As long as your brand is slapped on every channel that you have, customers don't see you as independent channels. They see you as one company with different ways of doing business, make all those ways as seamless and easy and transparent as possible. So, you know, the problem with common sense is it's not so common. <laughs> it's not, it's not common practice. I'd say the, so what you just said about the omni-channel aspect is really interesting to me because all of our sports teams, any, any sports and entertainment organization listening to this typically has this massive in venue live event that's happening, but there's also a whole life cycle that the customer has offline or 
out of person and online as well. Could be that they're interacting through social media. Could be that they're watching on TV. Could be they're trying to buy their season ticket. So there's phone, there's website, there's social. They are omni-channel, whether our leaders think of themselves as omni-channel or not. Your customers do. And one project we are working on this off-season with one of our clients is aggregating all that data into the CRM in the back of house because if somebody complains about something at live at an event and they go to the guest service booth, that information's not getting captured anywhere. That's not going into the sales reps data on the back end for that person to be able to call that that fan afterwards and say, hey, heard this happened to you at the game. So sorry. Outside of isolated events, that's not happening, happening systematically. And so to your point, though, I mean, the ability to resolve that and build rebuild that relationship is massive for our fans and, and for our likelihood that our consumers are going to stay with us. You know, it's so it absolutely is. And I often tell my clients that the only currency in business that matters is trust. And every time they experience a problem, you erode the mm. equity and the trust. And if you don't recover a problem when it occurs, you are also eroding that trust. And eventually people stop doing business because the trust has is gone. People don't trust you anymore. Uh, they don't trust your product. They don't trust the value that they got from the experience. Trust is why people buy and the lack of trust is why people stop buying. So it's a very simple thing, but harder to execute. In one of your consumer loyalty studies, there was some really interesting data that I'd like for you to talk to us a little bit about, where it talked about that consumers or, or fans, if you will, in this case, uh, who had something bad happen to them, but then it got recovered in a way that rebuilt the relationship, had a significantly higher intent to repurchase than shoppers who never had a problem in the first place. Can you talk to us a little bit of that, about that and, and maybe what are some of the factors that contribute to that intent to repurchase? Absolutely. So there are so many things why that is the case. Number one, so imagine you have a problem. So your trust is broken, but you decide because you still believe in that company that it's worthwhile to contact that company to get a resolution. So that means that you are trusting them still in potential resolution to that problem. Because if you absolutely broke all trust, you actually wouldn't contact. And unfortunately, first point of failure is if you measure how many customers contact you when they have a problem, and if that contact rate is very low, that's the first sign that you have low trust in your customer relationships. Okay, that's the first sign. If the contact rate, so wow, we hear about all of our customer problems, or my God, you know, 80% of our customers have problems and 70% of them contact when they have a problem, that's fantastic. That means that they believe that you are going to resolve it. So that's the first fundamental thing that we need to think about. In terms of trust, if a customer trusts you enough to contact about the problem, and if you do a fabulous job of resolving it, of not only, you know, resolving it, like meeting their expectations, but maybe even exceeding their expectations by making it fast, seamless, maybe even compensating you for some of the pain that you went through by having the problem in the first place. Well, not only do you make them loyal or you protect their loyalty, but you grow it and you grow it because of what we call cognitive dissonance. And I don't know if that's too much technical language. No, 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 go, go, go. 
Go so deeper. cognitive dissonance is this, is a cut, you basically have validated that they should have trusted you. You gave them a reason to trust you. You proved the customer correct. So now they love you even more. And that is the fundamental psychology behind why customers whose problems are resolved to their complete satisfaction are more loyal than those customers who didn't even have a problem because you're building on trust and you're building on cognitive dissonance. I believed, see, I was right. You proved me right. It was worth my time to get a resolution and you fix the problem. I'm smart. I'm a smart customer and I love you for making me right. And that is in essence why effective problem recovery is such a powerful construct in building and growing loyalty. It, it's so interesting because I, you know, I think back to my time at Disney and, and we always had this kind of internal philosophy that great organizations overmanage key details, systems and processes that other organizations undermanage or ignore. And I think service recovery is, especially seeing some of this data that's in that study and we'll link to it in the show notes, it is one of those areas that is massively ignored by organizations around how do we create a consistent service recovery process? And that has a massive impact on your bottom line, as, as you just pointed out. Um, what, on, on, oh, go ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry, ask your question because there's I, so much to unpack I, there for sure. <laughs> I know. They're, they're, well, I mean, we, could, we, we're, we might have to do a part two here, but I, I want to hear maybe what are some of the the most unique service recovery programs that you've seen or, or your favorite ones or any tools in specific. I, I want to get our, our listeners thinking about different ideas because again, traditionally this is a space in the, in the sports world that has been undermanaged. So I think that one of the most important uh, and simple things is so but many years ago, a lot of companies believed that if they had, 1-800 numbers, they had contact channels, and the more channels that they had, the easier it is for people to know where to contact. And that is actually the opposite happened. So the first, uh, I think the most, the best thing to do for your business is make it so easy for customers to reach you if they have an issue. So companies like Whirlpool, um, Sony, where, slapped on their appliances and tools, call me if, you know, there are buttons physically on the product, physically everywhere, and it's the same button, and it's the same place. Everything funnels to one location. If you have an issue, you never have to worry. Maybe it's like a, you know, a phone number that's easy to remember, or it's a, it's a button on your website, but Make it super, that is the number one. You want to give reasons for customers to trust you. And the biggest fail point is when you give them too many. <laughs> like when you give them too many places to call. Like they get so confused, they actually don't call you anymore. So if you don't have customers calling you, you basically have missed the opportunity to regain their trust. We also, there was a study done, this is decades ago, but it is absolutely still true, and it was with Polaroid. And it was, they proved that customers who had a problem with their camera, okay, and they contacted the call center, the call center did such a phenomenal job of resolving 
the issue that those customers were 20 to 30 percent more amenable to being upsold on a higher camera, higher level camera, a higher order price. So the ability to upsell a customer is far easier when you resolve a problem. So creating the opportunity to solve a customer's problem is a fantastic sales opportunity because if you can remember why people buy is because they trust you. Why people stop buying is they stop trusting. So you amp the trust quotient if you resolve their issue. So right when you have them in their palm of your hands, you've just resolved their issue, upsell them. And I know that sounds, you know, what? That's so cheesy, but actually it works. And there's a revenue play, not just on the fact that you protected that customer's loyalty, but you actually grew it as well. Okay, so I'm going to ask a, a question that I think a lot of our listeners are thinking about. In many sports organizations, uh, ticket revenue might be one of the bigger revenue plays that, that organizations have control over, one of the bigger revenue streams that they've got control over. And, and oftentimes, customer service, the customer service line is different than the ticket sales line, or they might call it ticket operations versus ticket sales versus customer service. And what I hear you saying is almost equip all three of those units, maybe with some more of some more crossover if we're not combining all of those into one. So that's a different issue. So if if those are the places where customers are contacting to get problems resolved, then yes, combine. But what you're suggesting is that the buying channel be, you know, consolidated where people can buy in different places, but maybe where they buy is also the same place where they're contacting for assistance. Mm. And so the notion that you're talking about is what we, what GE coined uh, about 20 years ago, the universal agent, uh, the super agent. And we see it in mm. some of our manufacturing clients, which basically is empowering a single rep to do lots of things that other reps for other channels do as well. So the, the greater the skills that we empower that rep, then yeah, the greater the opportunity is for effective problem recovery and effective upsell. So yes, but the, the, I think the notions that you're talking about are what I call the universal agent or the super agent, but yeah. Is that, is that, obviously you're gonna have to go case by case, but is that something that teams should be considering? And if they are, what questions should be, they be thinking about? We're going super deep on this one topic, but I'm interested. I, I would say it really depends. So okay. I think that if we were to stick to the subject of problem recovery, what's the first order of business for a, for a team to, to realize the economic benefit of effective problem recovery, my first piece of advice is to make it easy for people to contact you, to know where they can contact, make it one place, the same place, mm -hmm. regardless of where they're buying for help. That where, wherever they buy, and you said they are omni-channel, these sales teams, if they have a problem, they always go to that one place. It's a button or it's okay. a phone number and it's that same place for recovery. If you're asking, well, we can buy from different channels. So should the place where you buy your ticket, which can be here or there, should we try to amalgamate that? Do we streamline that? But on the recovery side, yes, combine, one consolidate. Place. Love it. 
I, I, before we move off this topic of recovery, there's, there's one tool that I want to just encourage everybody to use or think about. I'm not going to give a specific company on it, but when you talked about service recovery and not, and saying no to a company because of something that went wrong for me, it was American airlines the other day, Katie and I were both on campus somewhere in a remote college town and American Airlines canceled our flight. And the way to get that refund and reschedule it, I mean, you would have thought it was – you couldn't get a hold of them. So they, they had the process where you actually had to stay on hold. And companies that still make you stay on hold are just like, I won't do business with them. Why – just invest in the service that says we'll call, wait times are long. We'll call you back in two hours. I'm not going to stay on the phone for two hours. I got other things to do. And I think that's one tool that very few sports teams invest in of just like, hey, we've got a long callback queue, especially when season ticket renewals are up or something like that. Pay the money, invest in the technology that says, we'll call you back when you're at the front of the queue. Um, but that's a, just we a rant. agree. Totally agree. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let, let's talk about something here. Uh, I know we only have a few more minutes, but – as some of these sports teams are going into off season and reflecting back on kind of first year back post COVID where things were a little bit back to normal, they're thinking about making decisions to enhance the customer experience in, in your mind, are there elements of the customer experience that possibly have more financial impact based on how they impact customer experience score than others? And I guess what I'm asking for is, is almost like, are there any advice? Do you have any advice for identifying moments that matter? You know, there's this one moment. So the one thing that I'm seeing grow in all business sectors that we look at, and we work in so many verticals, is this notion of reward and recognition, is recognizing your most loyal customers and rewarding them. And rewards don't have to be big, but an acknowledgement, and I'm not talking about a loyalty reward program necessarily. I'm talking about a recognition of your, the fact that you're renewing, you know, that, that whole behavior of renewal says you're already a loyal customer. We want you back. And maybe sports teams have loyal following, but you know, so many companies, and I was just trying to think of, um, it was actually a sports team. Oh my gosh. That's right. It was the St. Louis Cardinals, is it? The Cardinals. Yeah, that's that's a that's a team. I don't know what they did, but so one of my clients, based in St. Louis, um, to kick off their massive customer centricity transformation study, we hired the one of the senior spokespeople for the St. Louis Cardinals, and it was amazing. We hired them, and we actually did the. Um, the kickoff at the stadium and mm. we actually got to pitch and we got all the senior leadership team to do that and the whole feeling was what what the cardinals do to reward and recognize the loyalty of their fans was remarkable it was unbelievable their crm database was remarkable and how they were proactive with their fans and reaching out and, and recognizing, you know, key milestones, you know, whether it's the number of games they attended or their spend. And that that just entrenched the loyalty base of their fans and the word of mouth was just incredible. They had such an incredible loyal following. And I'll I'll see if I can collect some of my notes from that presentation. It was a few years ago, but it was 
It was a sports team and it was a beautiful example. And we went to them to say, help, help a business. Cause you know, these sports fans were so loyal and dedicated help, you know, help, help this business, you know, teach them a few things. Mm. So I think the sports world can Incredible. teach business Incredible. a lot, uh, not just the other way around. And the reward and recognition is definitely an area that, that works and matters. Fans want to be rewarded and recognized because that's what they're doing. They're showing up, they're showing up to the game and to get that recognition that, Hey, we see you, we hear you, we value you on um, whether it's an acknowledgement, digital acknowledgement of their spend or their number of games participating, a number of tickets, all those little things really matter. So I'd say that's a big one. And it's not an interaction per se, but it can be triggered by an interaction or by a transaction. No, I, I love that you said that and you didn't say like, oh, waiting in line, because I think a lot of teams are looking at some of those in venue experience plus ups, if you will. But the one you just mentioned is out of venue, but based on in venue experiences. And I, I think that's a great one that a lot of people will overlook. And so hopefully you just triggered a bunch of ideas for people. Um, Paula, let's let's end here where we've got you've got a billboard, you can put up any piece of advice that can fit on a billboard or a tweet uh, that you would give to our listeners, any parting words of advice you would give them? Oh gosh, that's, uh, I'd say that, you know, know thy customer is one for sure. And, um, and protect the trust in your customer base. I think, again, if, if we focus on how we, how do we build greater trust in, in our customers and need to recognize that they're not all the same. So those are two things. Not all your customers are the same. So know thy customer and then figure out what you need to do to build trust, which is all the things that we talked about, removing friction, you know, and having effective recovery systems, creating relevance, being shoppable, having fantastic customer support. So those five pillars, you know, creating a sensorial experience that they enjoy and being meaningful. All of those are trust builders and there's so much to unpack there, but yeah, I don't know if that's like a billboard, it, but it's like, that works. Build trust that works. and build that customer. <laughs> there's Paul, there's so much that we can unpack. I feel like every time from now on you guys come out with a, a new study, you should just come on the show and talk about the findings and everything. I, mean, I know our fan base uh, and our listener base would love it. Uh, so oh, Paul, I it's been great that. having Thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's uh, been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Paula, where can people reach you if they want to follow along the journey um, of what you're doing or what you and the team are doing? Are you dropping new insights, blogs, or some newsletters they can subscribe to? Absolutely. So um, if they go to our website, uh, uh, which is veritygroup.com, they we're posting daily. Uh, every day we've got something new to say on CX. And we're constantly sharpening our axe with respect to thought leadership in this whole area of CX. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so we're publishing blogs once every two weeks. And if you follow us on LinkedIn, uh, you will get access to our latest and greatest, including all of our research, uh, our research study, which was published this summer in Harvard Business Review as well on loyalty programs. All of that is follow us on LinkedIn and follow us on our website and you'll see all of that. Amazing. Paula? It's been a great last 45 minutes with you. Looking forward to our next conversation. 
Thank you so much, David. Take care. And Bye-bye. we'll see you later. And to all our listeners, thank you. See you next time. Hey guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, we're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.